Hello, and welcome to Polylogue, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communication specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, March 21st, 2021. That is a mouthful. 3-21-21. It's almost over, but (laughs) (laughs) today we're talking a lot about the looming crisis, which the Biden administration doesn't like using that C word to describe the influx of migrants and unaccompanied minors arriving at the border. There are some other topics. I'll be talking a little bit about the rise of Asian American hate and violence, specifically... Violence against Asian Americans. Correct. And how this also ties into what tragically happened in Atlanta as well. What are you talking about, Brendan? Anything else? I think you pretty much covered it. There are a few items I'll bring up in Quality Questionable, but I won't bring them up here until we get to that segment. Okay. But what did you take a look at this week, Naomi? Right. So I looked at Face the Nation... This week, which was hosted by Martha Raddatz on the road live in El Paso. Of Of course, course. she loves it. Of course, exactly. And I also looked at Fox News Sunday. It's funny. I was talking to my brother this morning and he said to me, did you see what happened with ABC? And I said, what? What happened? No, I haven't. You know, it's early. I don't know. I haven't looked at anything yet. And he's like, yeah, they had their panel like on the border. And I was like, oh, it must be Martha Raddatz hosting. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly right. (laughs) Yeah. So I took a look at Meet the Press, and I took a look at State of the Union. It's so easy when it's just two. Well, Brendan, let's get to quality questionable. What do you want to start with today? I'm only going to start with quality because I only have quality today. Oh, wow. I don't have questionable. So I have two quality moments. Okay. So do you want part one or part two? They're your quality moments. I can't tell you how to share your quality. Let's go with part one. This is Senator Raphael Warnock from Georgia, Democratic senator, speaking to Chuck Todd on Meet the Press about voting rights. And I thought he had a really interesting way to discuss it. Now, of course, Meet the Press had a special episode last week talking about the over 250 laws that have been proposed nationwide across different states to reduce the ability for people to vote. And here's what Senator Warnock had to say about those efforts and the need to protect the vote and make voting easier, not harder, in a country that calls itself a democracy. And this is in the context of the filibuster and a new bill out there that the Democrats have proposed that would increase voting rights across the country. But it is threatened by a filibuster because Democrats, under the filibuster reality that they have in the Senate right now would need 10 Republicans to sign on to make that law a reality. Take a listen. Is that, I I understand that, what does that mean with the filibuster? You have said you'd like to see a carve out. Have you had a conversation with Senators Manchin or Sinema about the idea of a democracy carve out? 
Oh, I'm talking to my colleagues all the time. I've been uh, in the United States Senate a few short weeks. But Chuck, I have to tell you, I, I know that folks are focused on the filibuster, but this language about the filibuster is language much too puny uh, as an appropriate frame to talk about something as vital and as precious as voting rights. We have to pass voting rights no matter what. And it's a contradiction to insist on minority rights in the Senate while refusing to stand up for minority rights in the society. Uh, as someone who served as uh, the pastor of uh, Congressman John Lewis, who literally laid his life on the line crossing a bridge uh, in order to secure that right for us, uh, I'm going to do everything in my power to convince uh, my colleagues to support voting rights. It's the reason, it's the only reason why any one of us is in the Senate in the first place. Somebody voted for us. And right now, in real time, we've got 250 yeah. voter suppression bills all across our country. We cannot allow this to happen. We have to secure our democracy. So a powerful statement there by Senator Warnock talking about minority rights in the filibuster debate being like nothing puny compared to minority rights in the country. Oh, I was going to say, I think this is the first time I've heard the word puny on the Sunday news show. And I like it. Yeah. It, I don't know why, but every time I hear that word, I think of Schwarzenegger saying that. <laughs> why? I don't. It's, this is puny. <laughs> <laughs> has he ever actually said it? I think he has. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, keep going. But Warnock, Senator Warnock gave a really powerful speech on the Senate floor this week that was very widely praised, that used some similar language here. Uh, I do want to also note that if we wanted to have a questionable. It might be questionable how much Chuck Todd is using inside baseball terminology to describe his question, where he says a filibuster carve out. Unless you really deeply understand the filibuster discussion, you have no idea what the hell that means. Carve out? What, what is that? And I think what it really means is an exception. That means that bills related to democracy are an exception to the filibuster rule, meaning that they could be passed with just a majority rather than 60. Well, also, Carver is like a business term, so it's even more confusing. Yeah, yeah. But there currently is what might be called a carve-out in the form of reconciliation bills right. related to taxation. Naomi, what was one of your quality moments? So my quality moment are two clips from Senator Tammy Duckworth and California Congresswoman Judy Chu. They were on Face the Nation and This Week, respectively, talking about the state of our country and terms of hate and discrimination and violence towards Asian Americans. And they had really interesting points to make specifically around a couple legislative proposals going on right now to call out Asian American hate as something that will not be tolerated. And I appreciated what they said because it was something that I think both shows, all shows that I saw, did not properly contextualize. We'll start with Senator Tammy Duckworth on Face the Nation. The FBI director, Chris Wray, says that local investigators, they've got the lead, but from where he sits so far, it doesn't look like these shootings were racially motivated. From where you sit, is he wrong? Well, from where I sit, I want to see a deeper investigation into whether or not these shootings and other similar crimes are racially motivated. It looks racially motivated to me, uh, but I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm not a police officer. I'm not investigating the crimes. What I have done, though, is I have actually sent a letter to Director Ray and to um, Attorney General Garland asking for a deeper investigation into crimes 
that involve Asian Americans to see how many crimes have actually been underreported as hate crimes. We know that crimes against Asian Americans that have been categorized as hate crimes have increased by over 150% in our nation's major cities. That's over 3,800 additional crimes last year. But we also know that many of these crimes go underreported as hate crimes and are just classified as a mugging or harassment mm -hmm. or vandalism when they, really they were targeted at Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in particular. Earlier this month, when Director Ray appeared before Congress, he was pressed on what he was doing. He said that the FBI is already trying to address this with training, liaison events. He said they put out intelligence reports about what's happening in the Asian community. What more does federal law enforcement need to be doing? And, and don't they already have a civil rights division dealing with these kind of crimes? Well, they do, but the problem is the crimes often are not reported as a hate crime or race-motivated crime at the scene with the local police officers because people just don't see Asian Americans as a minority group that gets attacked on a regular basis. Now, if you're Asian American like me and my family, you know it happens on a regular basis, but oftentimes these crimes just get reported in some other way. Or when you say, hey, I think it was race motivated, it doesn't, the, the authorities don't pay attention to that and just reclassify them. And that is what I've asked Director Ray and uh, Attorney General Garland to take a deeper dive into. So supremely important point here by Senator Duckworth, and I think really contradicts some of Margaret Brennan's statements that the federal law enforcement, the Department of Justice, is already doing so much to address racially motivated crimes. And it's like saying, like, we have the checkbox done. What what more is there to do? Well, and Senator Duckworth is saying, actually, the data itself is flawed because it's underreported. Well, the crazy thing is that Margaret Brennan was on the absolute opposite side of that question last week when she spoke with New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio and said, I understand that you have a special division for this, but with a division, why why is this not getting done? Why aren't they? Well, I have it? a lot of comments about Margaret Brennan and how she talked about this. And I actually have a... a a, a counterpoint in my questionable, but we'll get to that. Congressman Chu was on this week, and she also talked about the need for accurate data. And we are also pushing forward. Yeah, we are, we're also pushing forward, of course, these two um, hate crime bills. One is called the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act. And this one would direct the Department of Justice to have somebody appointed to track these crimes and to make sure that they are going through the system and being prosecuted and providing guidelines on these types of hate crimes in terms of their uh, prosecution. The No Hate Act would address our very flawed hate crime system in this country. Our reporting is very um, flawed because uh, it relies on local law enforcement agencies to voluntarily provide such statistics, but 18 states don't even track such data. Three states don't even have a hate crime statute in the law. So hate crimes in this country are very undercounted. And also the No Hate Act will provide resources for law enforcement to be able to put such a program together and actually get training on how they deal with hate crimes and provide oversight that would be done by the U.S. Attorney General who would report to Congress. Wow, very comprehensive. Yeah, and the fact that three states still don't even have hate crime statutes in the books is unacceptable. But again, I th 
like the reason I wanted to call these points out as my quality, this should inform us as we're learning more about the rise of Asian American violence and what people, how people want to address it, you know, who should be kind of key stakeholders in that and, you know, what are our expectations? Like we should know that the groundwork to move forward on this is pretty bad (laughs) and we actually need it better. And, you know, there's a lot of journalists, a lot of kind of comments on the show saying like, oh, you know, violence of any kind is unacceptable. Violence against any racial group is, you know, especially unacceptable. But like, good for these women to say like, okay, there's that, but we should actually even know what the heck is happening. Absolutely. That is just so critical. This really reminded me of an article I read today by some of the founders of the COVID-19 tracking project talking about the problems with tracking data across the various states for COVID-19 and how it was so terrible and that they lay a lot of the terrible death toll that we had in this country on the lack of data and how that bad or bad data that led to really bad decisions early on and even throughout the crisis, making choices and assumptions based on data that just doesn't doesn't add up. Right. Right. And that's that's the same sort of thing. The other thing that kind of frustrates me about this conversation, having worked for years on a project about reducing gun violence that will one day see the light of day. There's a lot of talk here about tracking the data on hate crimes related to like reporting and prevalence. What I want to know about is cause, root cause, so that we can get to what are the solutions to prevent it. A lot of this seems to be we need to classify these as hate crimes so that they are prosecuted as hate crimes. But like prosecution is after the fact. What can we do beyond saying, oh, all crime is bad or we need to, you know, recognize that we're all one people, whatever, whatever, nice messaging. What can we actually do to prevent this from spreading? Because clearly there's a surge. What is the reason for the surge? Are these people, you know, being motivated through online places on the web that can be shut down? Like what can be done? So interesting you say that because my questionable moment is pretty much the worst version of that question that you're asking. It was with Margaret Brennan. Again, she was talking about this on Face the Nation and she was interviewing L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti. I mean, literally, my jaw hit the ground when I heard her propose a potential solution on how L.A. could address the rise of Asian American violence. Take a listen. I want to ask you about this really troubling spike in hate crimes because your city has really experienced experienced them when it comes to Asian Americans. Last year, you cut around $150 million from the police budget. Um, Because of these Black Lives Matter protests, you reprogrammed those funds. Do you need to push that money back to the LAPD so they can police this kind of ethnic targeting? No, I think that's the wrong frame. We are reimagining public safety together with our police department. We know that things like hate crime need both a police response and education, a reporting mechanism, civilians and community-based groups that can help be the eyes and ears. And we have no tolerance for this hate here in Los Angeles, a great city filled with folks of Asian American and Pacific Islander descent. Um, And we have seen attacks, footsteps away from where I'm talking from you today. Uh, We had an attack here in Koreatown um, just a couple weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And we are uh, putting together some of the best programs in the country. LAPD is absolutely part of that. But no, that's absolutely the fault 
false uh, kind of dichotomy. For us, you need to make sure that there is a police officer to answer, and we have more patrols this year, even with cuts that every department, including mm -hmm. our police department, hit because of the fiscal crisis, and also making investments in the human side of this to make sure community organizations are well-funded too. Wow. Margaret Brennan says, there's crime, we need to fund police. That's the solution. Yeah. And making it, it's like, didn't the Black Lives Matter protests cause this? Practically, like, that's like what she's underscoring. It's so disgusting. Like, oh my gosh, I could go on and on about this, but like if protests for protection of one minority is causing violence to another, what oh. are you going to do about it? This is kind of the sweeping racial generalizations by white people that drives me up the freaking wall because you did zero work, zero work trying to understand the racial dynamics of groups in Los Angeles as you're talking to the mayor of Los Angeles. You did zero work understanding, you know, what the requests by these different groups have been to law enforcement in the city. And you have... You're expecting the mayor to agree with your crappy, super shitty idea. I'm like, good for Mayor Garcetti for actually being like, that is the worst idea. Like, very politely saying, like, wow, that is a horrible idea. We are never going to do that. But it's just like, have a teensy bit of respect for the racial groups you're talking about and to your guest to actually suggest something that is maybe based in the community that is based off of data or is based off of something that will actually lead to change as opposed to saying like oh you know i think i saw on a headline that you took a bunch of money from police maybe you should give it back that what that's what was done here yeah i i i agree with most of what you're saying i would caution that we don't know how much work was done you said a lot of times that you did zero work doing this zero work doing that we Fine. don't know i am suggesting that it seems like they did zero work the work doesn't i show. naomi soto thinks it was trash work they haven't shown their work to that effect it's real bad and the, and the other thing is that like you have to be listening so carefully to be like ew this is the conversation that you chose to have about asian american violence with the mayor of a major city in America with a huge population of Asian Americans. This is how you chose to have it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Great. You're leading the conversation. Yeah. Do you have a questionable moment, Brendan? No, I don't. Oh, Remember? yeah, that's right. You only have two qualities. I quality. only have two qualities. Yeah. Oh, I did have like, I know we're running out of time for this, but uh, just to cheer us up because I swear I'm not always so angry. I have one other quality moment that is just appreciation for white people when they correctly pronounce people's names of another language i like really appreciate that they like made the effort to really learn it and chris wallace was that person today take a listen to a couple examples of him introducing the dhs secretary we'll talk with the man in charge of securing the border secretary of homeland security alejandro mayorkas in a moment we'll sit down with the man in charge of securing the border the secretary of homeland security alejandro mayorkas but first fox team coverage and joining us now the secretary of homeland security alejandro mayorkas mrs secretary welcome to fox news sunday just really well done. That man knows how to pronounce Spanish J's. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really appreciate it. Well, it reminds me of uh, the local classical station here that I hear, KUSC. They do an outstanding job. <laughs> 
pronouncing the names of a lot of these classical music performers and from like and, all over the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like insane names, like performers and and musicians, and they're just like you know ten syllables, and they're just perfection at this. And every so often they'll say, well. Thank you for having that request, Rebecca, because I get an opportunity to pronounce. You know <laughs> oh, what I that's mean? so like, sweet. <laughs> <laughs> the, but I, I don't know how they do it, but they just, they do it well. And there's something to be said for doing it well. Yeah. People appreciate it. Yeah. And they make it, they always, you know. If we can all learn to like. stations, everything, it's all about sounding pleasant. So yeah, that's even true. Even their voices, everything about it is just like. Wow, what a plug. Liquid silk. What station is this again? KUSC. Good job. <laughs> All right, Brenda, let's get to our show. <laughs> I'll just note, because we're, we're running late, about my second. I, I won't play it, my second quality, but it was. I didn't get to get to it, if you recall. Oh, I thought you were no. both times. No, I didn't. Um, <laughs> but it was State of the Union. It's fine. State of the Union brought back their, and it was hosted, I should say, by Dana Bash, brought back their badass women segment literally Dana Bash says that says those words and she said for women's history month to mark oh, women's right. uh-huh. history month and she spoke to two congresswomen both both republicans and both korean americans from california probably yep that looks like the case naomi all right let's get to segment 1 <laughs> 28 minutes in <laughs> For the record, we always say quality questionable. We died in like 16 to 18 I, minutes. That's segment one. This is segment two. We have three segments. <laughs> segment two. Saying something about politics or journalism? Where are we starting? Let's do... Well, I we have should so probably, much in politics, so let's do journalism. You want to... Go ahead. Well, we should probably explain that we kind of are combining today's show because we're pretty much talking for the rest of today's show about the influx of migrants and unaccompanied minors at the border Let's begin with journalism okay that's about the framing and then we'll move on to the politics of well it. this seems apt because my whole point was wtf why can nobody explain this great i was kind of in the same boat but why don't you begin just to give you kind of a little sneak peek of an example of how bad the shows introduced this on this week martha raddatz promised to talk about this issue from all angles, which is truly a joke. Because while, yes, she was on the border, because we all know Martha Raddatz loves doing these stories from outside the studio, which is commendable. And she did talk to, you know, local elected officials. She talked to people who were actually trying to cross the border. That's great. Yeah, she did a lot of work. But it doesn't mean you actually provided the viewer with a full context of understanding of what is happening. Right. And that's the like was my frustration. On Face the Nation, Margaret Brennan barely talked about this. She mostly talked about COVID today, but she did have one interview where she talked about this. And it was like pretty much an advertisement for Senator Rob Portman. Take a listen to how she introduced the topic and this conversation with Senator Portman. The Biden administration is faced with a growing crisis at the southern border as the number of unaccompanied migrant children in custody has now surpassed 15,000. Ohio Republican Senator Rob Portman toured several border facilities in Texas last week. He joins us from Cincinnati. Good morning to you, Senator. Wow, I'm really glad I understand that very complicated pressing story before we hear a partisan 
perspective. That's it? That's that all is, she says that's is her intro? how she introduces this topic. It's so bad. Like, the thing is, is while everything she is saying is factual, the cr- <laughs> immigration crisis encompasses lots of different facets and has been an issue for literally decades. There has not been a comprehensive immigration bill in literally decades. And there were surges of immigrants and unaccompanied minors throughout Trump's administration and also during President Obama's administration. And the part that drives me crazy is that no one actually gave a full comprehensive view of like, this is why there are cycles. This is why this happens every spring. You know, these three things happen in Honduras and El Salvador three years ago, and we saw this number increase. Like, no one did a thorough summary of even just like the immigration crisis of the last 10, 15 years to give context as to what is happening right now. Every example, well, almost every example, this week finally redeemed themselves at the end, and I'm going to get to them. But almost every perspective of this story that I saw across three shows made this a Biden versus Trump fight. Who effed this up more? Who messed it up? Why is it bad now? And that was the full scope, again, with the exception of the panel on this week, which I'll get to, on trying to understand this story. And that is completely hollow. So I don't know that the Biden versus Trump story was exactly how I would characterize the main thrust of the story on my Sunday shows. However, it was a it was a factor for sure. Um, there was an interesting piece of data that I found today. It was tweeted by Matt Iglesias, and he mentioned that actually there was way more number of people apprehended at the U.S.-Mexico border during George W. Bush than either Obama, Trump, or Biden. Like, literally like double. No, triple. Triple at one point, the spike that we have now. So... Like you said, the lack of context is really disturbing. And it's just like, do, has nobody been with, like, <laughs> You're these speechless. journalists, they're <laughs> like, I'm so speechless. These journalists have been doing this job. Like, they are professional. They have been with these networks for a very long time. Like, you could probably look in your drafts and see an immigration story from four years ago that was very similar. Hey, maybe, maybe the story is actually explaining why this keeps happening. Or maybe it's... Right, (laughs) right. That's not the story uh, they want to tell. Well, here's one thing that that frustrated me. And it's just a sense that this story was not on people's radar, despite the fact that it's been growing for a while. And that is the fact that today I was like, okay, I need to really bone up on this topic and understand it before we, we talk about it. And I've read a few things this week, but I was like, let me, you know, I'm going out and about throughout the day. Let me check my trusty app, Audem, A-U-D-M, which has like professional audiobook readers read like major deep dive magazine articles from the Atlantic, New Yorker, et cetera, et cetera. Not a single story in there about this crisis. Not one. Not, not one at all. And then I'm like, okay, well, let me, let me check my trusty list of politics podcasts, you know? And there's like one maybe two episodes from like the last few weeks on this topic, which is now dominating. And it's like, I don't think 15,000 people arrived yesterday. You know what I mean? Like, it's so clearly not on the radar of the news media in general. 
until it suddenly is a crisis. And this is the thing that drives me crazy is that Republicans have actually there's a few things. Yes, there are more people coming at the border. So that is not like that is true. But I think Republicans have taken the opportunity to really center themselves in this story as a way to kind of be extra critical against President Biden. And maybe it's working, maybe it's not. We can talk about that. But it's not like (laughs) Republicans discovered people at the border like, hey, let's make this an issue, right? Like there was a dearth and a missing voice explaining this story, explaining what was happening. The Biden administration was not front and center, kind of explaining what they wanted to do. Like there was just kind of no narrative. Right. And then Republicans have made the narrative. And now we're making this a Republican versus Democrat. Yes. Well, exactly that. So let me play for you how Meet the Press presented it in the beginning, because they had quite a package. They You know, we had the voices here of some migrants. Unfortunately, there were tons of voices in this package you'll hear from just politicians. But here's how Meet the Press tried to frame it. Take a listen. It's a political crisis for the new president with no easy way out. Republicans are quick to blame Mr. Biden for the growing number of migrants crossing the southern border, saying it's his rhetoric and policy shifts that caused this surge in migrants. The new Democratic administration says... It was left with a dismantled and unworkable immigration system by former President Trump. Look, conservatives want nothing less than a big wall and some stricter enforcement of the border. Progressives want nothing less than humane treatment for migrants fleeing violence wherever it is and a path to citizenship for those that are already here. It's a growing humanitarian crisis, though it's not a new one. Why did you cross? In the Rio Grande Valley alone, Customs and Border Protection is detaining more than 500 unaccompanied children a day, with the facility at more than five times its capacity. How much of an increase have you noticed in the last couple of weeks? It's it's quite significant. More than 5,000 children under 18 are in Border Patrol custody. More than 500 held for over 10 days, far longer than the 72-hour legal limit. Nearly 10,000 more are in HHS care. Surges of unaccompanied minors have been cyclical, occurring under Presidents Obama, Trump, and now Biden. It just seems like uh, we just went through this not too long ago, and here here we go again. But the administration says the U.S. is on pace to encounter more migrants on the southwest border than it has in the last 20 years and is trying new, more aggressive messaging. Now is not the time to come to the border. Frankly, the message isn't don't come now. It's don't come in this way ever. I can say quite clearly don't come. That's after mixed messages on whether the president's approach may be motivating more migrants to come. The idea that a more humane policy would be in place may have driven people to make that decision. Republicans are seizing on what was Donald Trump's signature campaign issue. They've caused a crisis. This is a crisis that is man-made by one man, Joe Biden. It's more than just a crisis. Though President Biden ended the Trump administration's remain in Mexico policy for asylum seekers, he has kept in place Title 42, a pandemic-era rule which allows the administration to expel migrants without due process for public health reasons. Of the more than 650,000 migrants encountered, At the U.S.-Mexico border over the last year, fewer than 1% have been able to seek protection, according to the L.A. Times. So what do you think of that, Naomi? It definitely addresses some of the criticisms you were mentioning. A lot of voices. 
But nothing... Well, it talked about cyclical, that it's cyclical. That's true. And it seems like this has just happened again, but clearly the numbers are higher now. There's questions about like why it why it happened. My feeling about this is that it's it's not like they're not knocking this out of the park. I'm a little frustrated that they start out and they spend so much time talking about what Democrats and Republicans are saying about it. But it is genuinely a complicated story. And I think the thing that is missing is a genuine attempt to try to get to the root cause of why this is happening and what potential solutions there could possibly, possibly be. Like, can we agree on what the problem is, why we think it happened, and what the solution might be, or what some solutions might be? And that's what I think is genuinely missing from this conversation, and that's really what the conversation should be about. I was very angry for a lot of the shows, but there was, like I said, a moment in which I was just like, finally, like this is the part that has been worth it. And that was the panel on this week. And it did not have the Roman Christie show. It had three national journalists, several of which have been following this story or, or follow and do immigration stories pretty in depth already. And so they had, they just knew it front and back. And it was there that I actually heard some parts where I learned or I gained some insight and I felt like I had better understanding as to what this new political fight and humanitarian crisis is actually trying to address. So one example of kind of rich, really helpful details. I heard right at the start of the conversation on this week in the panel, and that was from Matt Gutman. He is with ABC News, and he is the chief national correspondent. And he just had some really compelling data and figures that kind of really makes you realize the extent of this issue. This is unprecedented, Martha. We've never seen numbers like these inside these border patrol facilities, which in some cases are jail-like, in most cases are warehouse-like. This is pretty much twice the number at the peak in 2018-19, right? And what we're seeing in some of these facilities is overcrowding that almost boggles the mind. In one facility in Donna, Texas, it has a capacity of 250 beds. There are 3,900 kids inside there. And we heard Secretary Mayorkas talking about the threat of COVID. I mean, can you imagine the kind of social distancing they have there? There is none. Um, and we're talking about children and teens. And in many cases, you have 17-year-olds in the same rooms as four-year-olds and five-year-olds. Uh, and activists with whom I'm talking to, immigration lawyers are saying, this is untenable. So... It's very dangerous. There are real lives at stake here. And I really appreciated that context from Matt Gutman talking about, you know, one facility in particular, a max of 250 beds, literally 3,000 plus minors there right now. Yeah, clearly on, on, unacceptable conditions. Then... After this point by Matt Gutman, Laura Barron Lopez, she's with Politico, and she gave us really interesting insight as to what activists and people who are working on this issue on the ground, what their concerns are about. And it really makes it clear that it's not just the DHS detention centers. It's not just the Health and Human Services centers where the kids are later sent off to for a longer period of time. It's the whole infrastructure at the border is completely falling apart. But again, uh, there are so many, there's such a big influx. And I was just talking to local advocates here in El Paso yesterday, and they were saying that they feel as though beyond the rollback of the Remain in Mexico, which they felt as though uh, went well 
according to the advocates and activists. Beyond that, they feel as if the White House doesn't have a plan in terms of how to address not just the children, but also the adults and the families that are coming over here. And that when when migrants are being released into South Texas or when they're being transferred here to El Paso, that there isn't enough testing, COVID testing for them, that they aren't sure where they're supposed to go. And so they, they really, as Matt said, they do feel like it's a not sustainable situation here. So again, another important angle from this, that it's not just overcrowded detention centers for children, which that alone is deplorable, but it's it's the whole universe. And at every point, it seems like operations are not going well. But this was the kind of journalism moment of sanity for me today, where Matt Gutman gave several reasons to the rise of immigrants at the border and kind of gave us that snapshot picture of what's happening in their originating countries. And and Matt, explain how you get a child who is unaccompanied at a border as one. It's a little more complicated than that. And explain what the difference is between what is happening now in separating these families and what happened under President Trump. You think of the notion of a toddler just strolling across the border, and it's anathema. It's something that boggles the mind. But that's not exactly what's happening, Martha. Parents aren't sending their kids over uh, as one- or two-year-olds, right? Um, Typically what will happen is that child will come with um, a guardian, a grandmother that that child has known for their whole life, an aunt. And because they are not their parents, they will likely be separated from those guardians. And there is a choice, apparently, at some point, that that guardian can choose to either go back to Mexico with the child or say, listen, this child might have a better life than I was able to give it in the United States, and I might subject it to some trauma now, but maybe that's better in the long haul. And so that's one of the things we're seeing. And there are really three pillars of this surge right now. There is, you know, climate change, which is decimating Central America, these hurricanes that we've just seen, and political uh, and economic upheaval, plus the fact that people do think they're going to get a warmer welcome under President Trump. And it it does differ from family separation, because in that sense, uh, families were coming over together, and the administration under President Trump was forcefully dividing them. And that is something that obviously Mayorkas and the Biden administration have tried to fix, and they are doing that. Wow. So it really does sound like this panel discussion was the kind of discussion that should have been on all the Sunday shows because it really does try to get to the source of it, speaking to people who are or have become something of experts in these topics. Absolutely. And one thing I don't understand on this week, and this is something, you know, a broader question maybe for all the shows, and I'm curious as to your thoughts, when the panel is much more explanatory in nature. Yeah. It's so weird that they're at the end of the show. I, I was just thinking the same thing, the same exact thing. I was so livid for most of this week. And then this panel came and I was like, oh, that was helpful. But I would have appreciated the interviews that Martha Raddatz had so much more if I'd had this conversation with the panel first. Yeah. Well, sometimes they will. They'll say, I've got two experts and we're going to start with them. And, you know, often it's like legal experts when it's a big, complicated legal issue. But they need to do it more and they need to move it forward so people have a context for understanding the discussion coming later in the interviews. But I do think that, like, they treat their opening few minutes 
as like these that are our magic periods. And I know. And you'll notice that there aren't a lot of commercial breaks during those interviews either. If they have a big get, they'll go the first, you know, 18, 20 minutes, even yeah. 25 without a single commercial because this is their big newsy moment. I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know if it's like the ego of the host or what, but like... I feel like there should be a more honest assessment as to like what your viewer is getting out yes. of your intro. And if if you if they're genuinely probably not getting that much, like bring in the team from your network to help explain the like meaty story that you guys are going to be talking about. Like it just seems like there's such resources and assets to guide the conversation and to really frame the show that is really being poorly utilized. Absolutely. And what I would love to see kind of as I mentioned earlier, is once you do provide the groundwork of understanding, you know, surface some questions that will serve you in the sh- in the segments to come. Yeah. You know, like, what are the main questions related to this topic? And they shouldn't necessarily be what is going on sort of questions because the what is going on, hopefully that we can like discover the answer to that and present it to the audience before we have the major interviews. So the major interviews are more about what are you, person in power, doing about it? What are you going to do about it? What is your solution? What is your responsibility? Rather than just status updates. Anyway, I can complain about the media a lot today. Brendan, let's talk about politics, policy, what's happening, what isn't. Yes. So this, wow. The DHS secretary... As we heard perfectly pronounced, Alejandro Mayorkas was featured on at least both of my Sunday shows. I don't know if it was all Sunday shows. He was on this week for sure and Fox News Sunday. He was not on Face the Nation. And I believe that he did a awful, awful job on pretty much all of these programs that I saw is representative of the Biden administration overall doing an awful, awful job, both on messaging this issue and based on, you know, what they're actually doing and the fact that they haven't really solved this crisis, this issue overall. They are not doing well. And to start off, why don't we begin with just the simple question of why, for example, people like, why people like Rob Portman are treated as experts on this issue because they actually got into this detention center It might be because the press isn't allowed in. Take a listen to this interview question that was really well pursued by Chuck Todd. And we are also working on providing access so the American public can, in a safe way, without jeopardizing our operations, see what is going on. We're working on that. Well, what does that mean? I mean, right now we have no access to or photos of the conditions in the facilities. There have been no ride-alongs with agents. Uh, All inquiries are routed through Washington. There have been strict controls on sharing data. Uh, local border patrol folks feel like they can't even talk to our folks down there. Is there a gag order? Uh, there, there is not. That is unequivocally uh, false, Chuck. And let's let's be clear here: we are in the midst of a pandemic. We are because of the extraordinary leadership of the president climbing out of it more rapidly than ever before. Mm-hmm. But we are still in the midst of the pandemic. There is central uh, CDC controls in place and Border Patrol agents are focused on operations, on securing the border, mm-hmm. on addressing the needs of vulnerable children. We are not focused on ride alongs right now. OK, that's a bunch of BS. I mean, just give me a break. 
oh, we're in the midst of a pandemic, so we can't send you a digital photo that we took of the conditions. <laughs> Give me an effing break. Are you kidding me? The germs will attach to the email attachment, Brendan. This is unacceptable. Unacceptable from any administration, particularly the Biden administration, or any just any administration. Like, garbage. Uh, so... This came up on Fox News Sunday, and Chris Wallace did not stand for this answer. Oh, oh good. Let's. I want to hear it. Yeah. So why has the Biden administration refused to allow reporters to see for themselves and to record what the conditions are under which these m minors are being housed? Why, in fact, did you? When you went to the border on Friday and led a congressional delegation, why did you refuse to allow reporters to see the conditions under which these minors are being held? Uh, two things, uh, Chris, if I may. Number one, let's not forget that we're in the midst uh, of a pandemic and we are focused uh, on our operations, executing our operations in a crowded border patrol facility uh, where uh, hundreds of vulnerable migrant children are located, number one. And number two, we're working on providing footage so that the American public can see uh, the border patrol stations. And I would encourage uh, you and other reporters to see the facilities under the uh, control of the Health and Human Services Department where those children are sheltered and where they belong and where we are moving them as quickly as possible. Secretary Mayorkas, respectfully, sir, I, I think that there is a safe condition under which a pool reporter and a pool camera crew could go into some of the, these facilities. This has been going on for two months now and record the conditions under which these minors are being held. It seems to me to say it's impossible to do because of COVID sounds like an excuse. Uh, Chris, uh, we're working on providing access um, so that individuals uh, will be able to see what um, the conditions in a border patrol station uh, are like. But first things first, we are in the midst of a pandemic and we're focused on operations and executing on our plans. That's our highest priority. Uh, but we are providing uh, for that access. And certainly um, uh, reporters can see the Department of Health and Human Services facilities in which children are uh, sheltered for a longer period of time. I think after this series of answers, every single one of these broadcasts has the absolute right to call this a cover-up. This is the Biden cover-up because they are covering up what these conditions really are. They are, as Chris Wallace says, you could have very easily invited a reporter along with all of those members of Congress that were brought along. No one would have even noticed that they were there in the crowd of Congress people. It is just disgusting to hear this garbage, excuse-filled answer. And then, and then he has the temerity to say, I would invite them to go to the Health and Human <laughs> Services Please, one, please stop. Steve, <laughs> you go. You make a better. different department. He's yeah. the Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security. And he's saying, go to the Department of Health and Human Services. <laughs> They'll let your reporters in. Yeah, please check the facilities of the agency I am not in charge of. <laughs> oh, my God. This is... This is just like a perfect example, too. Not only of, I mean, because it's not only this one individual person goes on the show and like stonewalls on this topic. This is a decision. 
This is a choice oh my gosh, by the yeah, Biden administration yeah, over months not to let anyone in. And then when it's reached a fever pitch, the point of everyone calling it a crisis and making fun of the Biden administration for not calling it a crisis. Except when the press secretary actually calls it a crisis in a press briefing, except then. Yeah. So and then when it is a crisis, it's a full court press, right? The DHS secretary is going out there. You might not be able to see these conditions, but you'll see his face everywhere, right? He steps out, but he's not prepared Or not given authority. Yeah, or not given authority to be able to give, like, detailed answers on what the hell they're doing to solve it, when they're going to solve it, which we'll get to, or, or to say, you know what, we are inviting reporters in right now, and we've released these pictures. Go ahead and broadcast them, and I'll talk you through it. Because guess what, Biden administration, the pictures will get out. People will see what it looks like. Oh, my gosh, yeah. It's a miracle it hasn't already. And and you're not going to be there to explain it. But you could have been if you were in charge of this. So this is just awful, awful messaging from a presidential administration. Just I mean, awful. And then the other thing that we should note as well as we're talking about this, Secretary Mayorkas is highly trained and has tons of experience in this space. During Obama's administration, he served as he served in DHS. He was first the de- director of U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and then he was deputy secretary. So it's not like he doesn't know this in and out. He does. His authorized talking points for today were just garbage. At no point was he, I mean, we don't know, but it seems as if he wasn't given authority to talk about this issue from front to end when he clearly knows it. Yeah, to talk about it honestly. He often speaks in ways that sound clear, but then these hosts will ask like probing questions and say, hold on, but that doesn't make any sense. And then he just sort of like repeats it or or papers over it. But the talking points, they have this like finality to them. But when you dig deep, you're like, I don't really understand this. How is this actually going to solve the issue? Chuck, our, our message has been straightforward and simple, and it's true. The border is closed. We are expelling families, we are expelling single adults, and we've made a decision uh, that we will not expel young, vulnerable children. I think uh, we are executing on our plans, and quite frankly, uh, when we are finished doing so, uh, the American public will look back on this and say we secured our border and we upheld our values and our principles as a nation. How can you say the border is closed if there is this, what some would look at as a loophole? And I understand on humanitarian grounds, but if, if the goal is to get these asylum seekers to, to seek the asylum in home country, Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador, um, for instance, uh, how do you get them to do that if our policy is to let them in at the border? So, Chuck, we have a short-term plan, a medium-term plan, and a long-term plan, and the president uh, and I have spoken to this uh, repeatedly. Uh, Please remember uh, something, that uh, President Trump dismantled the orderly, humane, and efficient way of allowing children to make their claims under United States law in their home countries. He dismantled the Central American Minors Program. So we are rebuilding those orderly and safe processes as quickly as possible. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we will not expel into the Mexican desert, for example, three orphan children whom I saw over the last two weeks. We just won't do that. 
That's not who we are. So there you hear it. The border is closed, but it's not closed. We have a short-term plan, a medium-term plan, and a long-term plan. What are these plans? How about you explain these plans, help us understand these plans and how they're going to be operationalized and why they're taking longer than they need to take. These are interesting comments from Secretary Mayorkas. This is not something I saw on the shows I talked about. It's definitely something I saw in the news the last week of the Biden administration trying to up their, what's the word I'm thinking, their seriousness, their the rigor in which they're dealing with this looming challenge, as Press Secretary Saki calls it. What I did hear Mallorcas talk about is that a lot of this is a reflection of the choices of the last four-ish years, specifically by the Trump administration. Chris, uh, we administer our laws, and let me say a few things, if I may. Number one, the prior administration dismantled the orderly and safe way that these children could make their claims. It tore down the Central American Minors Program that allowed these children to make their claims under United States law without having to take the perilous journey. We are rebuilding that process. We are encouraging uh, families not to send their children along the dangerous journey because so many do not make it safely. We are encouraging them not to do so. Yet, if they arrive uh, at the border, we have a responsibility to allow them to make their claims under United States law and to address these are vulnerable children to address their needs. And we can do so in a safe and orderly manner. It takes time because the entire system was dismantled. We are working on it and we will succeed because that is what we do. So lots of the similar points that we heard him speak of almost in the same exact words. Exactly. And again, this is not surprising of a defense in terms of this is what has been approved to say from the Biden administration. What is a little surprising is, again, this is purely in the context of kind of defensive mode and does not reflect Mallorca's extensive ex- like direct experience working on this issue literally since, I think, Obama's first term. Yeah. And, you know, I absolutely loved how Dana Bash probed deeper into this and said, okay, if that's the premise, you know, that you're that you're starting from it, does it really make sense for you to move forward with it when you're not really prepared to deal with this number of children? The Biden administration, though, is, as you mentioned, now allowing unaccompanied children into the U.S., different from the Trump administration. But clearly, You don't have the infrastructure to handle this many children right now. As I mentioned, more than 600 children have been in border uh, protection custody for more than 10 days, far longer than is acceptable uh, and allowed by law. That's three days. So did you change the policy too quickly without having the infrastructure in place to take care of these children? Uh, Dana, uh, we uh, will not uh, abandon our values and our principles. We will not abandon the needs of vulnerable children. That is what this is all about. We are executing uh, on our plan. It does take time. It is difficult. Uh, Our plan includes the deployment of the Federal Emergency Management Administration, FEMA, to assist HHS in building its capacity more rapidly to shelter the children. But it is taking time and it is difficult because the entire system was dismantled by the prior administration. 
there was a system in place in both Republican and Democratic administrations that was torn down uh, during the Trump administration. And that is why the challenge is more acute than it ever has been before. So uh, I hear what you're saying about the Trump administration. But given that um, and given you know what you're seeing and what you saw on the border uh, and the conditions under U.S. custody that these children are in, would it have not it wouldn't have made more sense to wait until you are up and running with FEMA and HHS? My understanding is that that was a recommendation from career officials before you came into office. Dana, we are working in parallel streams. We are executing on our immediate plans to care for these vulnerable children and moving them uh, to the shelter of HHS as fast as possible. We are rebuilding the orderly systems that the Trump administration tore down uh, to avoid the need for these children to actually take the perilous journey. And we are investing. We are um, investing in those countries. Both you and I had the same response to the moment that Dana Bash says, my understanding, it was a recommendation from career officials before you came into office. What did you do? Mm-hmm. We both did that. <laughs> Great job from Dana Bash there. Did you say great job, unified yes. response? Yes. Uh, so Dana Bash, just, I mean, don't you think that's an excellent, excellent question? Like, seriously, you're not ready for this. Shouldn't you have waited? And of course, you know, he doesn't admit it. But then she asks the question that I think is what all these Sunday shows are really all about. And that is not only what are you going to do about it, but when are you going to do it? What's your timeline? When are, are you going to get this? We are moving as fast as possible. Okay. Um, can you be more specific uh, than that? I mean, when are you going to be able to have facilities up and running so that no child is in these jail-like border protection facilities for more than 72 hours? Dana, we um, established three new facilities just last week. We are also um, implementing new efficiencies in the HHS process so that we can unite these children uh, with their relatives here in the United States. We are working on the system from beginning to end. We are working around the clock 24-7. Let me share with you that this is what we do. We yeah. know how to do it. We have dealt with surges in the past. And the men and women of the Department of Homeland Security will succeed. But even you've admitted this is the biggest surge in, in two decades. Can you be more specific? I know, I mean, I mentioned the vaccine timeline. This is an administration not shy about putting dates on things. So can you give me a date that you hope to be uh, up and running so that these children have better facilities? Dana, as soon as possible. <laughs> Hate it. Hate that answer. You get an F for that answer. But th those were excellent follow-up questions. Like, yes. you can't be an administration who brags about beating your deadlines, and then when someone asks, hey, this seems really serious, you're trying to fix it, but it's really vague. When are you going to have an answer? When is this going to be fixed? And they're like, please don't make us sign to a date. Please, bye. No, that's... The, it's, it's like, it's not even that. It's like, it's like your professor called you on the phone, like, hey, you're, you're, you haven't turned in your midterm. And you're like, psh, psh, psh. I can't hear you. What? Sorry. Psh, yeah, psh, yeah. Bye. Gotta go. Bye. Yeah. Like that's that's what Secretary Mayorkas did. I don't understand how you can prepare to go on the Sunday shows and not be prepared to say, yes, this is a problem. Here is when we're going to fix it by. Here is when it's not going to be a problem anymore. 
I mean, they can't they can't say that, right? Because they don't know when that's going to be. But at least commit to the actions that you are going that you say are going to fix the problem. Well, no, no, no. He could say, look, we currently have. No, but he can say, look, of the current 600 children who are in protection, we open three more new facilities. We plan to open four new facilities within the next 10 days. And within those 10 days, we will find places for all 600 of those children. Well, especially all, since, you know, like, why especially since he that? says, you know, we will be successful because that's what we have to do. It's like, yeah, yeah. but by when? It's unacceptable. Totally unacceptable. And they have to have a timeline, right? They have to know I mean, when these things are opening up and when they're going to be able to get it done. I feel 2% bad that we keep crapping on Secretary Mayorkas because this is a decision by the Biden administration. Absolutely, yeah. This is not like he flubbed an interview and got it wrong and it's really bad or he performed really poorly and now we're like eviscerating him. These these were tactical decisions on messaging from the Biden administration and they told him, they wrote him a nice little memo and sent him out. And this is what he was approved to say. And it's garbage. It's real bad. So show rankings, Naomi. <laughs> F's for everyone. <laughs> Not for the shows. I, I don't know. I wouldn't give the show. Fine, fine. Okay, let's go one by one. Great. I'll say State of the Union did a pretty good job, so I'll give them a four, mostly based on Dana Bash's excellent questions that we just heard there. Naomi, how about Fox News Sunday? It sounded like Chris Wallace had some tough questions, at least related to media. Yeah, there. I thought the whole Mayorkas interview was actually tough and fair. I think Mayorkas kind of fell apart in it, but I thought the questions were noteworthy to... were worth watching. So... I think I'd give Fox News Sunday a six because I thought for most of the show, Chris Wallace really shows up. The panel, of course, was not great. It's not a six because we're going one, two, three, four, or five. Oh, right. <laughs> so a three. So just average. Right. Okay. How about you? What are you going to give Meet the Press? I think I'll give Meet the Press a three. I do. I did appreciate their explanation, but I don't think Chuck Todd's interview is quite as strong as Dana Bash's, and certainly neither of those shows knocked it out of the park in terms of covering this this whole story. So that's how it goes. So I think I would give this week a three. The panel was decent. Most of the show I had a lot of frustrations with, but the panel itself was quite beneficial. And then I think I would give Face the Nation a two. It's valuable if you want to learn about COVID and pretty much nothing else then it's worth it. All right. Kind of tough grading, but tough but fair, I guess. Get it right. That's all I ask. Sounds like a dialogue challenge. (laughs) Or try to get it right. I mean, goodness, I felt like the shows didn't even try that hard today. So if you're going to tackle a big topic, approach it in a way that is manageable to you. Let people know what your intentions are, what your goals are, and start the conversation. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Soronaomi underscore. I'm at B. Steidel, and the show is at PolyLogCast. You can also email us at podcast at polylog.com. Thanks, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.